This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Slaggable Monsters. The Yellow Fleet. Final Horror Essentials. And Austin Osmond Spare. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And as we go into the gaming hut, we see that the... The Doritos uh, poison you and then you die. That seems uncool, really. The dice are all ones. And uh, the miniatures are stupid and ugly because we're talking about bad monsters. Not bad in the sense of Michael Jackson's bad, meaning cool and street and sort of uh, spiky and funky. And not bad in the sense of evil because evil monsters are good. There you go, kids. That's your philosophical conundrum for the day. <laughs> just bad, just thumpy weak sauce. and weak sauce, uh, I think weak is the sauce monsters. For, yeah. And uh, this comes about because of Robin's threat to bag on the cockatrice. And beloved Patreon backer Scott Walker took him up on it and said, bag on the cockatrice, people. So we're going to do that. I would like to start with a brief Historical digression, if I may, Robin. If you're going to digress, digress before you're on a topic at all. That's, that's exactly. What I say. Then it's just Gresham. It, it is Gresham. It's just Gresham. Uh, the cockatrice, hilariously, is a misprint. It shouldn't even exist. It's like the, <laughs> the it's like the mandrake or the hand of glory, which is literally a misprint for the mandrake. 
Uh, the cockatrice is a misprint because Pliny writes that the Ichnuman, a kind of weasel, uh, is the only thing that can defeat the basilisk. And we all know the basilisk, which is the, the snake that uh, kills things with its breath and or gaze, uh, maybe turns them to stone. Who can say what it does? You don't come back from it unless you're an Ichnuman. Well, the Latin for Ichnuman is Calcatrix. And the way you get a basilisk in theory is that it is a snake's egg that has been nursed, warmed, sat on by a cock, a rooster. And what happens is some illiterate chud writing a bestiary in the 13th century sees the word calcatrix and says, oh, this must be where the rooster comes in. It's a cockatrice. And that is literally where it comes from, Robin. It was hard to get good freelancers in the 13th century. Right. And then uh, people retconned it to say, well, a cockatrice is not a snake's egg sat on by a rooster, but a rooster's egg that was sat on by a snake in the loserest possible way <laughs> to retcon the fact that suddenly we have two monsters that kill you with their gaze, breath, venom. We're not sure how they kill you because Pliny doesn't say. And then because the illustrator is just following orders, says, all right, snake with rooster feet and the rooster head. You got it. Doesn't look too scary to me, but I, I guess it'd scary if he saw it suddenly, draws it up, and that's where we are. That is how the stupid, hideous cockatrice got into our beloved turnip-headed wyvern etching, Robin, right. is thanks to misprints and stupidity. And that almost threatens to make the cockatrice interesting, because then you can go, well, it is a monster that is brought into being by a misprint, by a, a misconception. It is a tulpa creature. Mm -hmm. And let's look at this creature. Oh, no. It's a monster chicken. Yeah. Oh, no, it's still stupid. Yeah. And so, yes, the cockatrice is, I think this is the, the monster. I'm not going to be able to top the, the cockatrice in terms of being stupid on every cylinder on which you can be weak sauce. Because not only is it an unthreatening looking foolish thing, it's like, oh, you got killed by a chicken. That's great. It's humiliating to die from. And as you point out, has uh, this, uh, this weak lineage. And also, it is part of the broader class of creatures in which the basilisk also belongs in the original uh, versions of D&D. It's a one-shot kill. And I'm going to say that every one-shot kill creature is the result of early design misconception. So if you think about how uh, these powers would be handled, say, in a work of uh, fiction, uh, where, say, Hercules encounters a cockatrice or a basilisk or, or and any of these things, what it would do is you would see the monster petrify or poison or flame breath or whatever it is, supporting characters who exist only to show how scary the cockatrice is. The wharfs of ancient mythology. The wharfs of, well, not even the wharfs, right? The red shirts. Yeah, right. Because you don't kill off, well, actually, Star Trek does kill off a character with a backhanded blow from an oil slick, but that's another, yes. that's another segment. <laughs> that's, oil slick that's speaking of bad writing. Also weak sauce. <laughs> yes, right. But it's, it's in the conception of the one-shot kill and the saving throw that, you know, really, there should be a staged amount of damage. So if, you, if you're a hero, your sympathetic characters who have a chance of surviving are, are petrified. What happens? They're partially petrified at first, and they can fight on, and then there's uh, that, that it isn't an instant death. So that's like, you know, even in an economy where you expect it to keep rolling up characters or uh, being died is just a toll you have to pay, that you the GM hand waves you going off to... Uh, spend some money at the temple to get you resurrected. It's still just annoying and dumb and upsets the entire rest of the design economy. So 
I'm going to say that although creatures with a one-shot kill are bad in the scary sense, they're also bad in the bad design that leads to unfun play sense. I mean, I would push back a little bit because your your mention of one-shot kill traps is another place where the player economy, assuming characters are rapidly and easily developed, assuming that uh, resurrection spells or methodologies are, if not plentiful, plentifully available, that the rhythm of one strand, not the whole strand, but one big strand of the original zero-level white box D&D was exactly that, that it was, you know, very much a battle royale. You have your your uh, wave of characters enter the dungeon. They're all picked off one by one, bam, 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 bam. And then, you know, whoever gets the farthest is going to have the most gold and, and magic and whatever else. And then that will feed back into iterative play. Now, whether or not that is a particularly satisfying nook on which to stand a great art form, I think you and I agree, obviously, that we do prefer to have heroes with continuity and complex dilemmas and even complex tactical situations that are not, did you bring a mirror? Yes, no. I, I feel like for certain types of game, the one-shot kill monster has a role and the error comes in transposing the one-shot kill monster intact from those sorts of games into another sort of game. And it's a similar error to if you suddenly in D&D, if you ever meet a queen, she can just move anywhere and kill you. And when you defended it, you'd say, well, that's how it works in chess. And it's like, but that's a different game. We're not playing that. And I think the same argument could be made. We're not playing ablative dungeoneering anymore in many of our games, and certainly in games that you and I are designing or talking about for the most part. But I, I think that the, the basilisk or the or the gorgon or the cockatrice, well, maybe not the cockatrice is still stupid, but um, any of the one-shot monsters, same as a pit, a pit trap or a sphere of annihilation, just the sort of thing you're going to run into if you're in the very O's of D&D. Yeah, if you're going to do one-shot kills... That should be the very focus of your premise, as you suggest. But right. for most versions of, of F20 and D&D, even back in the day, that is a an idea that is separate from the rest of the game economy. And is annoying, even then. Do yeah. you have a category of uh, monsters you would like to uh, slag on next? I am not a giant fan of monsters that are ideally tied into a bigger story but you don't meet them in that big story. You meet them somewhere else where they are uh, ripped out of their context and dropped into the dungeon where they, in, in, in a sense where a monster lives or dies by its context. And you can see this, you know, even with uh, D and D vampires who manage to, uh, I mean, credit where credit is due. Uh, Gary or Dave came up with the only way to make a vampire scary in D and D they drink your levels, but then they do that at the cost of, taking them out of the social context that makes a vampire and they just become level drinking things. And those might've as well have been shades or, or something w without being uh, vampires. And I feel like, you know, things like Ravenloft and other dungeons put the vampire back in, but the ability to just sort of slot in uh, monsters with their own story that should have their own story and that should be part of a social network, making them just, prisoners in a 10 by 10 room in a dungeon somewhere it, it doesn't uh, do justice to the monster and again it sort of uh, truncates what should be an interesting story in much the same way that the one-shot kill truncates what should be an interesting encounter yeah i think that that's exactly right and some monsters from classic uh, folklore and horror films 
makes sense in a dungeon environment. You can easily imagine werewolves hanging out in a dungeon. Yep, that checks out. Mummies. Or mummies. Yeah, that, I, I get why that would be. Although you meet the more groany bandage mummy, not the sort of magical Boris Karloff mummy from the, the right. ritual version of the mummy. Mm-hmm. Something that I think always is out of context in any D&D environment, whether it's a wilderness or a dungeon, are mythical creatures that are not really monsters, that are not that scary or not really hostile. So a unicorn, what is the point of stabbing up a unicorn? And, you know, yes, a unicorn could stab you with its horn, but do you want to fight a unicorn? Is it fun? Are you mad at unicorns? No, you're not. And so there's a whole class of trying to come up with every quasi-mythical creature that, you know, there's, so there's stats for the phoenix. We've talked about the phoenix in detail, but there's all sorts of fun, interesting things you can do with a phoenix, but uh, fight it in an F20 context. Treating it as a monster is not among them. And in fact, you know, that's another knock against the Cocteris and the Basilisk and all of those other things is they weren't, unlike, you know, say your harpies and your cyclopses, those are mythical creatures who are designed to fight the heroes and work that way. But just things that are weirdo animals that may or may not exist do not make great monsters and I don't think can easily be uh, reimagined into great monsters. And you get those weirdo things like the D&D Gorgon, which ought to be a cool monster, but in fact is a steel-plated bull? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not a Medusa with snakes and the aforementioned one-shot kill that we'll have to fix, but just a steel bull? I think the the Gorgon may be uh, among the most peculiar the D&D original classic monster choices. Well, they they had to have something because they already had a Medusa. They they took uh, a, a singular monster uh, from the Greek myth and made it a class of monsters, and then they had the word Gorgon just left over, and everyone knows Gorgons are scary, so sure, let's name this other thing a Gorgon. So, yeah, I'll think of something very scary, a cow. Yeah, well. But I'll give them armor, a better armor class. Well, that That is the most terrifying thing about cows is their, is their armor. Also, I am not a giant fan of one joke monsters. You know, the, the mushrooms that explode, the mimic is a dumb monster because it's, 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 you've seen it once. <laughs> All right, fine. Maybe in one encounter, but if it's every single time, the joke stops being funny. It, it never turns the bend and, and becomes funny again. It just becomes evidence that the necromancer that built this dungeon had a, a four year old's mentality. And by extension, the GM had the four-year-old mentality. And so I'm not a big fan of joke monsters in general. Uh, Again, comedy, comedy is hard. Comedy and fantasy gaming is nigh impossible. And and the fact that they're bad jokes is just the beginning of the problem with them. (laughs) Even if they are actually cool and interesting, they are still one-shot monsters that depend on player surprise. And that causes a number of dysfunctions. Uh, one of them is a whole never read the monster manual concept, which, although great for selling monster manuals to players back in the day and then having them tell their GM they had didn't own the book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good on you, early TSR, causes uh, distrust and tension at, at the table, at least among the, uh, the young and unsophisticated uh, teenage rubes we were back in the day. And even worse than that, these things all cause player caution of, you know, the lesson of this is done. Never trust a carpet. Never trust a stalagmite. Never trust a stalactite. 
Also, never trust anything else. So you've got to tap your way slowly through every single environment. And the great thing about monsters is that they slow down play and make it go on and on forever because every room could have a mimic or a stalactite uh, monster or a shrieker in it. And uh, you've got to check every mushroom to make sure that, oh, no. And anything reliant on player surprise is just going to generate incredibly tedious player caution. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to make players nervous about opening treasure chests, just put cursed treasure in it. That's what that's for. Don't make the treasure chest a hilarious monster that bites your arm off or whatever. It, it isn't funny. And as you say, it, it slows down play and it counters the core activity of the game. It'd be like if there was a monster that after you killed it got more powerful. Be like, what's the point of this then? Which would be the uh, actual Arabic legend of the ghoul, by the way, just pointing that out. But it would operate against the organizing principle of play because now what are you doing in this dungeon anyway? Then if you if you can't trust that the treasure is to be carted off, maybe some of it is cursed. But, you know, if the end state of play is not reliable, then why did we go through that tiresome encounter with the with the cockatrice? Right. Right. And my final category of weak sauce monsters is the virtuous monsters, the good in terms of the good alignment uh, monsters who are clogging up uh, various bestiaries with creatures who are kind and nice. And then, you know, the the, the Kyrin, the Lamassu, uh, and of course the classic worst monster of all is the Flumph, which is just, it's, it's a one joke monster where the joke is it's too dumb to even ever put in anything, uh, which <laughs> is for, for those, it's a sort of a, lawful good horseshoe crab basically that you encounter in a dungeon and then what happens so these would be fine if there were some sort of guidance with them that explains here is why it is fun to meet a lamasu and guess what you can almost certainly skip the stats the other i guess reason for there to be good creatures is to have something to come and attack the players when they inevitably uh, turn to evil turn evil but assuming that you've gone past the phase where your players are turning evil again these are taking up space and they show up on random encounter tables. So guess what? You roll the Lamassu and the players haven't turned to evil. So you run into a Lamassu in the dungeon and he kind of waves at you and you go, bro, <laughs> you know, maybe has some snacks for you. It's an example of following a train of thought, which is that every mythical creature needs D&D stats and not going to the next step of, and here's how we're going to make that fun and interesting and part of the F20 experience. I mean, it's, and it's not even as though it would have been that hard to give each of them a specific kind of aid that they give to good characters that, you know, the, the Kyrian gives you good luck or the Lamasu protects you against the next bunch of monsters. Maybe it warns you what's coming, you know, that could even have rhymed with their original purposes in myth, but no, they just sort of show up and then. There's a, an awkward period where you're both edging through the dungeon and the Lamasu says, don't murder and steal, boys. And you're like, oh, we wouldn't dream of it, Lamasu. And then off he goes. Again, it's a, it's a creature that has a story or should have a story that is truncated off of it and bopped into a dungeon for no reason. And so it's, it's part of that other crime that I was talking about that the Lamasu, Lamasi, whatever the, I don't know Akkadian plurals, sue me. Lamasim, when they, when they wander around in Babylon, they have a purpose. They're guardian spirits. They are watching over, uh, the city. They are, uh, in many ways, the 
exudation of royal power. Uh, they've got a lot of, of functions in a dungeon. You just suspect that they're it's it's like meeting, you know, your 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 youth minister um, uh, on the way back from the dive bar. You're like, now I have questions about the Lamassu and what it's doing down here in the necromancer dungeon. That's odd. Yes, yeah, so at least an out of context <laughs> vampire will still at least try to kill you. Whereas, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe shows you his slides, his vacation looks there. I don't know. Just a weird day. Yeah. So, I, I mean, this is something that I think you and I have talked about previously is that monsters don't exist in a vacuum, that monsters are part of the story that you're telling in the game. And that story does not have to be classical three, five act model story. It can be a picaresque story of how I fought those things in that room. But again, it has to be part of that story. It can't just be, you know, random tourism through Isidore of Seville and misprints thereupon, right? Yes, it's maybe it comes out of the theory of, well, it's unrealistic never to meet a good monster. Well, okay, but have something interesting happen. <laughs> yes, and what realism are we talking about? Because I can think of a lot of places you would never meet a good monster, like everywhere. <laughs> Yes, I think the whole question of applying realism to F20 is, uh, as a as a conceptual frame is, is a whole other segment. So unless you have late-breaking monster you would like to insult, I think we can head on uh, to our next segment. I, I used up most of my ammunition on the 11-hit-point cockatrice at the beginning of this encounter, Robin. I'm out of magic him. crossbow bolts. Yeah. We have to move on. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters-icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At PelgrainPress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once more to visit the History Hut, but this time around we have to go all the way, uh, halfway around the world and back into the 60s and 70s for a story that beloved Patreon backer Stephen Dosman uh, wants us to look into. And I can see why this came to mind, because this is looking back at the Yellow Fleet, clearly is a result of uh, what happened with the Ever Given, the ship that uh, recently clogged up the Suez Canal, and it was stuck there for about a, a week in what in navigational circles is known as an oopsie-doodle. And that was resolved. And, and while it was stuck, there was a lot of spec. Oh, this is going to bring the global economy to a halt. This shows the weak spot of globalization a, a whole week. Well, it turns out, Ken, there was a period not so long ago within living memory when the Suez Canal 
was closed for a lot longer than that. And here's where you pick up the, let's start with the story as it actually happened in real life. Right. In 1967, Israel uh, went to war with basically all of its neighbors, but specifically in this case, including Egypt. This was the famous Six-Day War, which the surrounding countries would hope would be more like the One-Day War. And then at the end of the Six-Day War, we're saying, thank God it was only a Six-Day War. But the upshot of that is that Israel occupied the entire Sinai Peninsula up to the banks of the Suez Canal. In order to prevent Israel from using the canal, Egypt then blocked both ends of the canal by scuttling ships and planting mines, uh, sea mines, so that the Israelis could not, you know, move forces back and forth through the canal. Uh, the Israelis had very little interest, I think, in moving forces back and forth through the canal. But after the war was over, Israel is sitting on one bank of the canal. Egypt is sitting on the other bank of the canal. Both countries are still technically in a state of war. And suddenly, maritime insurance companies said, even if the mines are removed, even if the scuttled ships and other detritus is taken out of the way, we are not going to insure someone who sails a slow, expensive cargo ship through a war zone. So the canal was functionally blocked, whether or not it was actually blocked, and it was also actually blocked. And this block lasted through yet another war, the Yom Kippur War, and then finally was reopened. The canal was reopened in 1975 as basically the rest of the world got tired of putting up with this nonsense and put pressure on Israel and Egypt to neutralize the canal and let people sail through it. And this began the process of normalization that culminated in the Camp David Accords. Basically, a lot of it, I think, is due to Nasser dying and Sadat taking over and inheriting this problem and saying, I would rather have a functioning Suez Canal because it it feels like that would be a, a valuable thing to, to use in, in my uh, governance of Egypt. So that's the basic story of why the Suez Canal was shut down for eight years. And as you might expect, they did not inform other ships that the war was starting. And a lot of ships thought, oh, we can beat the war through the canal. This won't be a problem because no one, possibly including the Israelis, thought that they would get all the way to the Suez Canal. And sure enough, when the Egyptians block both ends of the canal, there are 14 ships stuck in it, or I think 15 ships uh, stuck in it at the time and can't go forward, can't go back. What's going to happen to these guys? Well, they sit there in the canal for eight years, gathering yellow dust, hence the name Yellow Fleet, and they amused themselves, Robin. That's what happens. <laughs> yes, there's some black sailor humor as the crews are stuck on these vessels for years and years. Now, gradually, the shipping companies find ways to get the crews mostly off the vessel so that it's reduced down to the bare minimum skeleton crew, and they sort of cooperate with each other so that, you know, the, the uh, minimal number is the minimal number for all of the boats altogether. But there's a while there where people are just stuck there for months and months on end, essentially imprisoned by the results of this conflict. And so the other thing they call themselves is, is the Great Bitter Lake Fleet. So they created an, an association called the Great Bitter Lake Association. They had a Bitter Lake Olympics and they uh, even like issued fake postage stamps for uh, each of the ships. They made their own postage stamps. I don't know whether they then got anything into the mail system. That's not clear to me. But those stamps are uh, hugely valuable collectibles today. Well, the, the Egyptian uh, post office or postal system would mail things sent from the Yellow Fleet. So 
they did get into the mail system. They were, you know, mailed worldwide through the Egyptian mails. So they, they were out there. People were getting mail from them. They're, they're actual legal stamps that got yep. postmarked and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the, uh, the story in real life. How does the uh, Delta Green continuity explain uh, what is going on here? Well, I mean, the, the Delta Green is, by and large, not involved in explaining the mysteries and janky bits of the 1960s so much as it is surfing them into mythos horror. So it's not usually the case that, say, Nir Lathotep blocked the Suez Canal because it was getting too close to whatever because he wanted to loot something off one of the ships. That's not how it works. It's too annoying even for him. Yeah, exactly. It's It's too picky. What happens is that in the Delta Green universe, people who are put in conditions of stress or, and I would argue that uh, extraordinary boredom might be a kind of stress, turn to the mythos or are drawn magnetically to the mythos. And I feel like figuring out some sort of magical mythos power that exists in the stretch of the Red Sea where Moses led the uh, fleeing Hebrews across with magic and uh, thundering omens in the sky might have some mythos significance that there might be some sort of yog sothothic energy still littering around or that appears when the stars are right or the, or the specific moments in time are there. And maybe that yog sothothic energy begins to work its will on some of these ships. And uh, you could have, you know, anything from, I mean, sailors are superstitious folk by and large anyway. So you could certainly have a, a, a Swedish uh, sailor on the MS Killara who, you know, remembers the old rotes that um, uh, Count Magnus uncovered and is, is part of that uh, tradition. You could have, you know, any number of British occult guys who wind up on the, on the UK ships. There's two American ships. So obviously they could have any kind of uh, suspicious weirdness. And of course there's ships from the East block, Poland and Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia, any of whom might've been, you know, subjected to some sort of psionic awakening torture in a, in a prison camp right after the war and then let go onto the merchant Marine when it turned out, Oh, they probably didn't have psychic powers. They're good. But under the uh, gaze of Yogg-Sothoth in the mystical Bitter Lakes, perhaps they do. Um, there's a, an American ship, the SS Observer, that is separate from the rest of the Yellow Fleet for some reason. It goes into a different lake and sits by itself. So I think that's maybe the point at which Delta Green gets the, you know, the call. Maybe one of yeah, the guys. Yeah, want a ship to have a majestic secret crew on it. What are we going to call that ship? Hmm. Mm-hmm. What could it be doing? Is it observing? Oh, what the hell? We got to. Yep. It's Friday night. Let's just call it the observer and get Let's out of here. Let's call it the observer. And, and so maybe the observer, like you say, has a majestic asset or uh, someone who is former Delta Green, whose job it is to, you know, he, his retirement was, oh, we're going to put you on this ship. We're going to give you a berth. And just anytime the radio does this, you call us. And sure enough, the radio is doing this at some point during the confinement in the lakes. So he at least that's, is smart that's not enough the most to coveted retirement, by the way. No, it is not. Trust me, in Delta Green retirements, it is among yeah. the most coveted retirements. Well, we, we would kill you, but the, the slot on the observer has opened. It has just opened up. So maybe, you know, he was able to get his ship moved out of the direct path of the Yogg-Sothothic fulminations. And, you know, the sure enough, the radio pegs in the direction it shouldn't. He gets the call out and then you have to get inserted into the yellow fleet. And that is possible because 
at some point the, the ship owners are able to send people on board, but that means you're working either through Israel or through Egypt. And because you are probably spies, you are probably suspect by both sides. And that adds uh, more fun because you can't be bringing a lot of, you know, uh, guns or super powerful equipment with you to deal with this situation or books that might get uh, confiscated because you have to go through either Israel or Egypt. And, you know, maybe that's problem one is, well, yeah, if you can self insert past the, the mines on your tiny boat onto one of these ships, you can bring anything you want. But did I mention there are mines and you don't have a map of the, of the, of the mine uh, field. So I, I think that there's a, a, you know, fun just inserting. And then obviously the activity, which is to uncover the cult that has brewed up inside the bitter Lake association and getting them, you know, plausibly accidented or brought off on the next rotation so that you can deal with them in Stockholm or Hamburg or wherever, uh, without, um, causing a giant scene with the eyes of both the Egyptian and Israeli secret police on you. Because again, both sides, not just their militaries are observing the Suez, but also both sides intelligence apparatuses are because they will be sending, you know, commandos across the, across the canal on moonless nights to, to mess with the other side. So they got to keep an eye open. Right. And at its core, what we're talking here, of course, is classic installation, confined space horror, where there's a, a crew aboard a, a ship that is slowly going bonkers or being preyed upon or being preyed upon and therefore going bonkers. That's every version of the thing. That there's a version of that in every season of Doctor Who. Uh, you know how to uh, get there and for a one shot or like a con uh, scenario. Of course, the uh, characters are, are the crew. They're already there. And uh, for a longer uh, campaign version, getting there is is half the fun. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, in a in a in a convention version, you begin as you know U.S. personnel on the on the African Glen or the Observer who are you know realizing that something has gone wrong, and enough of you were in you know uh, the Navy during the war and saw some stuff. You know your old you know sort of merchant marine salts who've been around the world and you know what Dagon is and you think, oh, maybe some of this is happening over on one of those other boats and we have to figure out, oh, it's more than just one of the other boats. This is not good. Narlathotep, I haven't heard that name since the OSS. That's right. Since the old days. The other MacGuffin, if you don't want to go all the way back to Moses, is something on one of the boats is a powerful mythos artifact that wasn't going to go off unless it was left sitting unattended for eight years and then it starts to glow and activate and it could be somewhere in the cargo hold of any one of these ships because they've all gone all over the world and they've all got, um, this is pre-container. So they've all got uh palletized cargo, not containerized cargo. Well, on that note, I think uh, we can unblock our uh, waterway and head uh, along it, wave at a commercial and uh, see uh, what waits us in the next port. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Ensure that this podcast makes its saving throw against underfunding by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Carl Schmidt. Louis Sylvester. Matthew Baskerville. Michael Manival and Phil Bailey. The beam of the projector stabbing through darkness, the $20 you paid for a popcorn and a Coke, welcomes once more to the center aisle, center seats, past that weird stuff in the carpet of the cinema hut, because Robin, we're on day 17. We're at the end of our horror Cinema Essentials Film Festival. I like how you say day 17 and not week 17. I'm not sure which is actually more terrifying, you know, which I guess (laughs) I should have thought of before we started doing a horror Cinema Essentials, which was more terrifying. But here we are on uh, the 17th and final installment. And uh, coincidentally, we're in the teens or well into the teens with uh, movies that are in pretty much living memory movies that you're like, Oh, that was that year. As opposed to, I don't know, look it up. Yeah. It's hard to, to describe what period you're in when you're in it, but looking at all these and trying to come up with a common thread, I would describe this as we are currently in a neoclassical period where we are seeing familiar building blocks and tropes of horror storytelling And we're seeing directors come to it in an example of the very best films. They are taking all of the tools of classic cinematic storytelling from uh, acting to production design to editing and just throwing them at horror the way they would any other genre. And the thing about horror's positioning among the genres is that it is mainstream enough to just be, oh, yeah, there's horror films at the multiplex all the time, some of them including some of the ones we're going to mention are big hits. But even the ones that are franchised are still not the tentpole franchises of any of the studios. And the original creators of them still have more creative control. So if you want to have something to say, have an audience among the world's vast nerd audience, and uh, make something good and cool, horror is once again a really viable niche to work within. So you're not making cool little indie dramas. And you're also not making big tentpole movies that the executives are going to ride you on beat by beat. Yeah. And again, none of the movies I think that we're going to talk about are Blumhouse films, but the Jason Blum revealing to the world, basically with a gun at its head, that if you make 40 horror movies for 7 million a piece, your chances of making 100 million on two or three of them are pretty good. Forcing the economics, which has been driving horror since the 50s, certainly, into the minds of uh, filmmakers and uh, producers, I, th- I think has had the salutary effect where some of these movies could get greenlit 
because they see what Blum is doing. And even if they're not doing it in the same exact model that he is, they're willing to gamble a stamp and say, sure, right. do that thing. And not to spoil things, but one of the very biggest ones we're going to mention is very much Blumhouse. All right. So in that case, let's go to something that is not Blumhouse, but is very great because it's from South Korea. And as as you know, that means it's going to be very great. It's Trained to Busan uh, by Yeon Song-ho from 2016. It is a zombie film that uh, fulfilled the promise of World War Z and the promise of zombies, but on a train, which is by itself just a great promise. It turns out there's a lot more things that zombies can do on a train than snakes can do in a plane. Exactly. There's there's at least two more things. Um, and it, if you have actual human characters, as we do in this case, with the father trying to take his daughter to Busan to drop off at her mom's house. We have a, a natural story dyad, and then the people that you meet on the train in the tradition of every great train movie are interesting and real, but eccentric in exactly the way that makes the train movie work better. Even without the zombies, this would be a strong train movie. And of course, with the zombies, it becomes an amazingly good train movie. The zombies are the, the sort of the fast crowd zombies, but they're, I think they're, they're, they're not rage zombies. They're not living. They are the, the undead. And it's just a, a masterful use of special effects, masterful use of, you know, cutting and lighting and all the other sort of traditional arsenal of, of zombie uh, making uh, movies and, and horror movies. But it wraps itself around this story that has also got an internal arc to it in a way that a lot of horror stories don't, where the, the main character begins sort of detached from everything. He doesn't want to be part of the world. And this crisis draws him out and makes him his own best self. And that is unusual to see in any movie uh, handled well. And I think a little more unusual to see in a zombie movie where the opposite happens, that you begin with characters you think might be sympathetic and they turn out to be more rotten than you had even begun to hope. So in a lot of ways, it's sort of an anti-Romero film while still having an awful lot of social commentary to make in the classic Romero fashion. Yeah, I, I, and Gong Yu is really great carrying the film as the protagonist, and you experience uh, his desperation and fear and determination, and he has a, a great arc, as you describe. And I think this film is as good an example of any of that sort of neoclassical space that I was talking about, where you can't point to any one thing about it that is, oh, this is a really new and innovative way of presenting a zombie movie. It's taking elements of different not just as uh, the zombie movie, but as you point out, the train movie, it's a horror in a confined space, but the confined space is moving quickly and then just executing really well on every level from the acting on up and uh, having real characterization. If you go back, if, if you've been w watching any of the older films, uh, you will notice that realistic acting and characterization are uh, pretty new <laughs> in the horror canon. Well, they're not always something that people were looking for. No, it, it was uh, assumed not. In fact, why would you bother with that? But now uh, that is very much part of the equation. Uh, can I going to throw The Witch by Robert Eggers from 2016 to you? Because you're a bigger exponent of it than I am. Yeah, The Witch is a literally, um, and it, according to a, uh, a title card at the end of the film, it is a Puritan folktale. It is something that the Puritans, when they landed in America, told each other, and in many cases told each other in court, that there were witches out there, they were going to mess with the godly, and when the little family that begins our story is exiled from their main Puritan colony to go out to the, the wildy woods, 
because of some sort of doctrinal difference. We are never told explicitly, but they are godly wrong. And when you are godly wrong, you know what that means, Robin? It means the devil comes to you. And uh, sure enough, uh, there is a Vavitch out in the Vavuds, and it begins to work against the family, beginning by stealing a baby. And then as suspicion and hatred begin to work uh, on the family, there is also a satanic black goat named Black Philip that also inspires further actions that are ungodly in uh, the other characters. And the interesting thing about the movie, in, I mean, there's a million interesting things about the movie, but uh, Ralph Ineson as William, the patriarch, never go, and Eggers never pushes him towards the sort of um, Robert Mitchum evil preacher as a, as a cloak for his own sin way. No, William is a genuinely godly man. He's just out of his depth. He's weak. He can't handle it. And Ralph Ineson plays that sort of disintegration of a man who doesn't have the mental or, you know, cultural codes to deal with what's happening to him in a really interesting way that almost, but does not quite overcome what I think for a lot of people was their introduction to Anya Taylor-Joy as Thomason, the oldest daughter in the, in the family and clearly a target of the witch's attentions. And she is another revelation because she's so much the core of the movie and so much of the movie is about, again, someone who is in a position from which there is no escape, a classic horror film position. But in her case, it's the cultural position of being a young, intelligent woman in Puritan, Massachusetts. And even her best options are not good. And uh, the devil knows that. And the devil plays on those thwarted possibilities, just like he plays on all the other moral weaknesses of the family. It's unusual to see a movie that tries to take another viewpoint seriously, and almost never do you see it succeed to the extent that Eggers does with The Witch. It's, and, you know, tonally, mood-wise, the, uh, everything about the, the, the filming itself, the, the color palette, the, cor- uh, the uh, cinematography, all of that works. It's, it's one of those movies that is not in black and white, but you're watching it in black and white because the sort of the 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 stark grayness of it is, is just seeping into your heart through the whole thing and uh if you've ever had a little sister or brother that you didn't like well this movie will remind you that was probably because they were full of the devil and maybe you you weren't wrong uh it's it's just a a, a superb evocation of the source material and also an amazingly good film and an acting tour de force not least for ralph Ineson and Anya Taylor-Joy. From 2016, we come to The Girl with All the Gifts, directed by Cole McCarthy, uh, written by Mike Carey, based on his novel, and another great example of uh, contemporary neoclassical horror, where, uh, once again, we're back in uh, zombie territory. There's a a, a big uh, sense of uh, 28 Days Later as we head into this uh, school where children who've been affected by the uh, what turns out to be a fungal zombie plague, so that's a neat little play on a modern science and the zombie uh, trope. And there's also an element of different 60s British uh, science horror. Uh, so you've got a strong a whiff of John Wyndham and also the uh, sort of early 60s cycle of uh, kids uh, being experimented on in an installation cycle of movies like the village of the damned and, uh, and another film just called the damned. And, Everything comes together with a great cast, 
uh, Gemma Arterton is in it, Patty Considine, Glenn Close, they're all uh, giving the same sorts of uh, top-notch performances they would in any film. And uh, the girl played by Senia Nanua is really amazing kid acting. That's another thing that is improved a zillion fold, not just in the history of horror <laughs> cinema, but in the history of cinemas that you have, you know, all these little Olivier's and Brando's running around and they're like nine or what? I, mm-hmm. I don't know what age she was when she shot that, but, uh, and it goes a bunch of places. So it's not just locked in the installation, but there's uh, a whole progression that it undergoes. And it's just a masterful threading together of a whole bunch of different uh, horror traditions. Yeah, it's um, and it's also in addition to having that that cozy apocalypse that you talk about, that very Wyndham-y feel, which is again a feel that even movies made from Wyndham films don't always have. It also managed to do that thing that I, I think we've both mentioned we love in a horror film of slowly expanding the stakes of the movie. But in this case, it's not widening the apocalypse out. Once the zombies overrun the camp, you realize what the apocalypse is, but widening out what the movie is about, the scope of the movie. And we begin to think, well, it's just a zombie movie. All right. No, it's a zombie movie, but it's about uh, this kid. So it's a, it's a adolescent uh, picaresque, you know, buildings Roman movie. Great. It's about personal growth. Oh, no, it's bigger than that. It's about, you know, science versus humanity. It's about, you know, the questions of what is a, a rational sacrifice to make for knowledge. Oh, no, it's bigger than that. It's a mythology. It's actually mythic at its heart. And every one of those opened out scopes works so naturally that you realize it's happened almost, you know, as it's happening and it, it's never a, a shock or a, or a disjointed. It always feels like a natural outgrowth. And at the end, which we shan't spoil, there is a, you know, a genuine uh, sort of a, a moment. I, I don't say transcendence, but as close to transcendence as you get in a British zombie movie uh, at, at the tail end. And I think that it it works remarkably well, uh, not just on the sort of standard horror of, oh, my God, zombies, but also moral horror and almost not quite, but almost cosmic horror uh, towards the end. It's it's a remarkable piece of writing. And the fact that, you know, everyone and I'm not as big a fan, I think, of Gemma Arterton as an actor as you are. I kept being surprised that it was Gemma Arterton. I kept thinking that looks like Gemma Arterton, but they're really good. And then, oh, no, it turned out it's still <laughs> I, I, Gemma I don't Arterton. like Gemma Arterton. Therefore, this performance that I really like, I can't. Arterton. It's not like I don't like Gemma Arterton. It's just that I did not expect a great performance out of Gemma she Arterton. Disproved I, your thesis. I like a lot of people, Robin, for a lot of reasons. And uh, Gemma's thespian skills were not necessarily in the mix. But yeah, no, it's a it's it's just a remarkable film. And as you're watching it, there is a constant happy surprise that it gets better than you thought it was, which is, again, something that I think even very great horror films don't always have. They either start out uh, so amazing that you're just sort of sad at the end, like, well, you know, that first act was great or they um, uh, they just sort of maintain a tone. But for a movie to keep not just improving, but improving in scope and meaning and everything else. That's kind of a, an unusual event. Um, although I guess it's also somewhat true of our next film, uh, Get Out by Jordan Peele from 2017, which is a movie. And that it's be- from Blumhouse. And from Blumhouse, which begins uh, with what I have called one of the most perfect scenes of horror in cinema. It's just almost a perfect set piece that opens it. Then the movie you know, sort of says, all right, we did that. That's to show you we can do that. Now we're going to start a movie. 
And I, I felt like it almost never got back to that opener, but the process of following Daniel Kaluuya, the, the viewpoint character, through the uh, terrifying adventures of meeting his girlfriend's parents yes. is first entertaining the and then is coming from inside the house and, and then and then riveting and then truly god awful. Uh, it, it's another great movie that, that builds out what it's about and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I don't know, maybe there was some criticism that one of the reveals was a little bit campy or weird, but at the time that it happened, it felt naturally unnatural, if you know what I mean, right? And of course, I'm not going to stop talking about Get get Out without talking about how great Catherine Keener is and how she should have been in everything and she should still be in everything. But it's nice to see her actually get used correctly for once. It's It was lovely to see her as the mom, the scary mom in the scary family of scary Allison Williams. Yes, and, it's and a Allison movie. Williams is perfectly cast. And to this day, she has to explain to people that she's the villain, that she was in on it too. They won't believe it, which proves the thesis of the film. And this is just one of those debuts by a, a director who, you know, he worked for many years in sketch comedy, so he knew the ropes of the business. But you're just amazed throughout it at one scene after another that it's just one great, amazing classic scene. Even a great horror film, you know, can have one or two iconic scenes, and that's all you need. But this has iconic scene after iconic scene after iconic scene. Of course, the satirical social criticism about the experience of being black in America is taken through the lens of Rod Serling. So it's bringing in uh, that other great horror tradition, unlike a lot of things that have followed in its wake, uh, including the Twilight Zone show that Jordan Peele produced. Mm -hmm. uh, the mixture of Serling and a longer form story format, in this case, a full film works perfectly because it keeps going through all of those changes. A lot of other ones are trying to stretch out a 22 minute Twilight Zone story into a movie or, you know, God help us sometimes an entire season of a show. Uh, but this is perfectly timed. There's his control as a director is really amazing. And as you point out, the, the cast is really great. And it's just one memorable moment after another. And it's not surprising to anyone who knows horror that it has always been used as a mechanism for uh, social criticism but this time around people noticed and they made yeah, a bunch of other films because it was it was super obvious because yes. <laughs> I, I also want to call out betty gabriel as georgina who for my money in a movie stuffed with great performances gives maybe the best performance as the maid at uh the parents house and when you realize what's happening in that movie with her you flash back and say, oh, that scene was a million times better even than I thought it was. And I already thought it was amazing. Uh, she's so great in that. And I, I don't know, really know her work. I assume she's been in other Blumhouse movies, but frankly, she deserves her own something to, to show off the, the level of, of control and acting that she does in, in that, uh, you know, in a, in, a, like I say, in a movie that pretty much has no bad performances in it and has the great Catherine Keener. Uh, for, for Betty Gabriel to stand out shows just some amazing chops. So good for her. And the scene with the maid in my mind is the one that gets you almost to that perfect opener in terms of, of impact and power. And it's, it's just such a great moment. Speaking of control, a movie that's all about control, about remaining silent is a quiet place directed by John Krasinski, uh, starring uh, Emily Blunt. Uh, their real life couple dynamic is, uh, very much part of the heart of the film, where it's a, a, like the host. It is about a, a family uh, versus kaiju, but this is 
after the kaiju apocalypse. So mm-hmm. it brings in uh, elements of the apocalyptic, uh, which therefore uh, refers to the horror film. This is so influential that now there's uh, more riffs on it coming. There's uh, a teen rom-com that is clearly inspired by A Quiet Place on the Way and a sequel, if uh, theaters ever open up, is apparently on the way. But this is, uh, again, another example of uh, just super well-executed uh, film that rearranges different horror building blocks and uh, it executes really well and is claustrophobic. And, uh, you know, whatever the phobia of making a sound is, I bet there's a name for that. I don't know what it is, but it's a (laughs) brilliant modulation of tension, 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 disaster, tension, 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 disaster. And uh, it's just and has heart. And uh, again, it's all about the execution. And there's been a, a number of movies where, you know, you have to stay quiet or you can't show a light, which is something that happens in a lot of movies. This movie thinks about all the things that those movies never think about and then makes those into set pieces and makes those set pieces terrifying. Mostly, I will say, because Emily Blunt is such a great actress and does such a good job legitimately being communicating that terror to you. What Among the things I liked about the movie, I, I'm not sure that I liked it as much as you did, but I certainly liked it a lot, is that it felt very much like a 50s science fiction movie. You could imagine this movie being made in 1956, probably for monogram on a $9 budget, but there's nothing Those in it. would not have looked good. It would have had ping pong ball eyes. One of the many great things about this movie is you barely see the monsters at all. So uh, you wouldn't have needed to in the monogram version. I, I just, I just had such a sense of continuity with, you know, with, with not just horror, but with science fiction horror and, you know, the, the sort of notion, and I think we've talked about this in, you know, the context of J-horror, the notion that technology in many ways is bringing with it its own disasters. And that this, by happening after the disaster, you know, comes up with a very interesting sort of starting point for the film and then manages to reiterate without, you know, banging on you with it that, yes, this is, this is the disaster. This is what happened. We are still the heirs of this disaster culture. We haven't figured out how to fix it. All we can do is survive. Again, there's, there's elements of the film that, that I think again, harken back to that 1950s monogram sensibility. And in some of the places I thought those could have been, you know, a little scarier, a little bleaker, but you can't argue with the result. And the result was a terrific, terrific movie. And Emily Blunt certainly in every scene is bringing it and just terrifying the hell out of you in sympathy for Emily Blunt, not out of, you know, she's not scary. She's scared and you are scared for her. And that is just terrific uh, acting on her part. So can we come to our final film? Another film that uh, follows our pattern of just really super well executed examples of uh, neoclassical uh, horror. So take it away with uh, Alex Garland's Annihilation from 2018. Alex Garland's Annihilation is based somewhat on the Jeff Vandermeer novel. That's the first part in a trilogy, the Southern Reach trilogy. It is vastly interesting. It's a, it's a rich novel. It is a novel in which ennui is the gothic emotion, which you'd never see. So already it's interesting on, on a structural level as well. It's also probably unfilmable. Uh, Alex Garland uh, described making this movie as making a movie of the dream you have after reading Annihilation, which I think is correct. And in the film, there is a a weird phenomenon called the shimmer that is uh, happening in uh, an area of the American South called Area X, 
Possibly there was a meteor or a comet, something like that. Let the shimmer out. And now we're investigating it. And Natalie Portman plays a biologist whose job is to go in and look at the shimmer because it turns out when you send people in to look at the shimmer, they vanish. And so the team is already basically people with nothing to lose. So it's, uh, it's a great premise. It's sort of stalker, but with bright colors and half the running time and Natalie Portman. So in every way better than stalker things happening. (laughs) things happening. There's also as much Cronenberg in it as, as Tarkovsky. Right. I, I feel like casting Jennifer Jason Lee as a Martinet who cannot express emotion is, a little bit counter to purpose, but again, Jennifer Jason Lee, one of the best actresses of the century, does a great job uh, as a Martinette who can't express emotion. And she kills it. Tessa Thompson is in it and is amazing as Tessa Thompson always is. Um, there's just a, a degree of unreality, a reality and surreality that Garland manages to bring to film in a way that almost no one ever does. It's got a lot of color out of space in the DNA there, specifically the way that he does it. And uh, I guess you also have to sort of credit the sound design, which is amazing. If you didn't see it in the theater and you don't have a good sound system, you are going to come out of Annihilation and say, well, I liked it well enough, but I don't think Ken and Robin were right to call it an essential. Well, watch it in a movie theater and you will, you will understand why that sound design pouring you almost into the unreality of the shimmer and, and the, uh, wildness of their experiences is uh, it, it's a crucial part of the film, even more so than in, than a lot of other films. And uh, it, it's, it knocks it out of the park. Yeah. It's a film that really escalates that uh, has a very distinct acts to it and progresses and continues to up the stakes. It does uh, riffs on uh, some of the very classic moments from uh, science horror. There's the, which member of the team has been infected uh, which, of course, is a, a riff on uh, Carpenter's version of the thing in particular. Mm-hmm. But it just keeps on going with a really interesting mixture of reality horror, body horror, and uh, as you point out at the end, cosmic horror. And uh, during the final sequence, I uh, just had sort of my that great feeling of your jaw dropping where you're thinking, what am I even watching? What is going on? <laughs> yeah. And one of those things that, as you point out, the theatrical experience really makes a difference for. Uh, unfortunately, in the UK... It just went straight to video and streaming. Uh, which, yeah, I think uh, it did in most countries except America and China. And fortunately, Canada as well. So yeah. uh, as you point out, it was a real treat to get to see that in the theater. And that's a great note on which to end our epic horror series, uh, where we all anticipate uh, what the great horror films of the early 20s will be uh, when we all get out of this uh, real horror and back to the uh, imaginary and wondrous horrors that await us in the cinema. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. 
a king waits for us. And impossible landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by impossible landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing it's time once more to clamber up the creakety cobweb stairs. We'll pause on the landing to wave at the portrait of the legendary king of the fire salamanders. He'll give us a little wink. He's a very friendly mystic salamander. We're going to sweep on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist where he waits. He's got some pictures to show us this time around because an anonymous Patreon backer, anonymous but beloved nonetheless, asks for the story of Austin Osmond Spare. He is the London born and bred, lived in London his whole life, artist who worked in a sort of a symbolist pre-Raphaelite illustrational style, uh, depicted occult subjects, and in addition to creating what are now iconic works of occult-themed or esoteric art, uh, was an occultist himself who had lots of theories and wrote grimoires and uh, anticipated the surrealists in a lot of ways. He was born in 1886. He died in 1956. If you want a really solid biography, uh, look for Phil Baker's biography. Uh, the subtitle differs depending on what market you're in. In the U.S., it's called Austin Osmond Spare, The Occult Life of London's Legendary Artist. And if you're in the U.K., it's the somewhat more decorous, The Legend and Life of London's Lost Artist. And so, Ken, while we're imagining people are multitasking and doing some image searching to remind themselves what the uh, work uh, looks like. Where do we want to start with the uh, with the story of Austin Osmond Spare? I mean, I guess the first thing to sort of warn people is that Spare, even more than Blake, is a prisoner of his fans. All the way back to uh, his earliest times when the sort of yellow book Uranian set in uh, England wanted to make him one of their own. Uh, they were looking for a new Aubrey Beardsley. That didn't work out well. He briefly uh, hung out with Crowley in the AA, the Order After the Golden Dawn. He rightly decided that Crowley was a power-tripping jerk and wanted nothing to do with him. Also, Crowley commissioned art and paid him with a ceremonial robe. Which is yes, which is not, the, not the, what you want from a client. The worst thing. I mean, it's like, how, do, how does Crowley do it, right? I mean, any given interaction, he finds the biggest, jerkiest thing to do in that interaction. It's just a gift. Um, and then later on, he has been adopted and was pretty much literally adopted by a Crowleyan uh, disciple named Kenneth Grant, who has written a number of superb occult books, superb in the sense that they are rich in ideas and poor in logic and reasoning. Right. And we've done a whole segment on Grant. So yeah. to the side and 
right. write Kenneth Grant into the... Well, don't type in Kenneth. That won't get you anywhere, but type in Grant and that will get you to the episode. <laughs> or use the, use the quote marks. Anyway, uh, Kenneth Grant had his own notion of what Austin Osmond Spare was about. And then Spare has also been very influential on Grant Morrison and Alan Moore. And each of them has their own notion of what Austin Osmond Spare was about. So the trouble is that I, of course, came to spare through all of these secondary sources with the exception of Crowley. And it is very difficult for me to necessarily go all the way back to the beginning because I have not read spares own occult works. I've read Baker's biography, which I think is, as you say, a very good uh, cut. It's an, it's an excellent biography gives you all the facts, but I think Baker is also part of this post Crowleyan Thelemite intellectual movement and therefore wants to put more, unified theorizing into spare than I think spare ever did. And again, the, the parallel with Blake, I, I make advisedly because Blake was a, a brilliant visionary artist who had more ideas than he ever knew what to do with. He was barely tolerated by the artistic community when he was alive, produced magnificent combinations of words and pictures that even Blake changed his mind as to what they meant and reproduced them and changed them around. And his own Blakeian mythology went through a zillion different changes Austin Osmond Spare begins with theosophy, as so many people do, from it draws the notions of Zos and Kia, Zos being the self, Kia being the mid-priced Korean car. No, actually, it's the power of the universe and believes that everything comes from the tension and relationship between Zos and Kia. But what the nature of that tension is, what the nature of that relationship is, and to the extent to which Zos and Kia are central to everything, that changed back and forth over the next 50 years of his life. So Kenneth Grant tries to sort of reconcile it all into what he calls the Zoskia cultus, which I think is Grant's uh, systematizing mind going to work in a way that Spare did not. But Spare believed that the act of creation in many ways is a fundamentally repressed act that you have to repress your genuine self and then it will come out in creative energy in a way that you did not expect. And that that sort of being open to what is is categorized as automatic writing, both by him and by the surrealists, but is also the notion that if you overthink the art, uh, you'll ruin it. And it has to come from some deep place within you. He very much believed in suppression and repression to the extent that many people argue that he was gay and uh, did not want to admit that to himself. He certainly was married and uh, carried on relationships with women, with women, but that is not dispositive because so did Oscar Wilde. But we don't know because obviously he doesn't write about that, but he does write that masturbation in as clear terms as you can possibly write in the Edwardian era is crucial to uh, magical and artistic expression. And that is one of the cores of his magical praxis as opposed to his magical belief system and therefore gets drawn into discussions of Crowley and sex magic and Tantra and whatever else it is you want to uh, bring it in. But for Spare, I think it's just about that masturbation is literally an expression of the repressed. And since that's what art is also, they are connected in a Zoskia kind of a way. Again, this is me not having read Spare, but having read an awful lot of different versions of Spare. So maybe I'm picking up like a cubist 
version of Spare. But you will be glad to know that he was no uh, crude Freudian. He called Sigmund Freud Sigmund Fraud at every opportunity. <laughs> right up your alley. So his notions of the unconscious and repression come from the same steam engine ideology that everyone's did in the 19th century, but not through uh, good old Dr. Freud. And he likewise called Carl Jung, Carl Junk, believing that uh, Jung was at the very least halfway there when he talked about archetypes and true forms because Spare was a genuine occultist who believed in the existence of these sorts of energy forms and said that uh, Jung is just copping out. Yes. Well, he said all these occult symbolism is uh, a metaphor for uh, human individuation. So right. that's not magic. That's just a uh, treatment. So obviously that's bananas. Vampires is vampires, not symbols. Yeah. Although, again, Spare also was a good enough artist to know that a vampire is also a symbol. So uh, you mentioned his uh, sort of pen and ink uh, line work, which I think is what he's most famous for. But he also did pastels. He did watercolors. He did chalks. He did all kinds of other sorts of art over the course of his career. And we think of him as being sort of poor and living in a in a in an attic somewhere and grinding out these canvases. But. He actually had a lot of art shows and he had, I think, three different revivals after being the youngest person to exhibit at the Royal Academy in 1904. He then moves through and he has a revival when surrealism comes in and everyone's like, oh, spare. Yes. And he was like, I was doing automatic art long before those pikers. He didn't right. care for them, but he took the moment of spotlight time. Exactly. Um, now, he absolutely did live a hand to mouth existence. Yes. He was impoverished his entire life uh, he had a brief period as you mentioned where the uh sort of the, the post-decadent gay set he had some uh, patrons who were uh paying him for work at that time but other than that the commissions dried up uh his works were reviewed but were treated with hostility he had shows but they were uh, during his lifetime they were not considered a big deal and and it was uh, grant uh you point out who is responsible for his reputation and but of course that occurs in the 70s really his big revival uh, once there's the and as part and parcel of the big occult revival and of course he has been dead for uh since 1956 so like a lot of artists who uh seem influential he was you know very much disregarded uh, throughout his entire life but you know grant paid his bar tabs which is not nothing Yes. <laughs> Grant was a stand-up guy. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's blaming Grant. It was, right. Grant was not indifferent to him. The entire English literary and art establishment was indifferent to him. He did have a, a period where he was building up, you know, an audience and he was building up some work. And then his house got bombed by the Germans during World War II and obliterated along with all of his art and all of his uh, library and all of his supplies in 1941. And also the blast injured his arms making it harder for him to draw. So, you know, in a in a big way, this is all the Nazis' fault, Robin. Right. They hurt Austin Osmond Spare. Uh, speaking of wars, there's another really interesting sideline to his career. He uh, was constricted into World War One. He was briefly a military orderly, uh, but then uh, got to become a war artist. And he was working not on the front, but in a studio in London, making paintings of his experiences in the war. And those are also really amazing and striking and quite different from his occult work. And the whole 
field of war art is one that uh, I don't think is looked at enough. And when that is reevaluated, his works in that vein, I think, will also be seen as uh, really important and crucial. Yeah, he's 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 really got an interesting sort of he's he's either part of a scene after the scene is over in the way that he's a decadent after Beardsley dies or a surrealist before surrealism gets off or he works in 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 fields that other people you know discard or or disregard he also drew drawings of british movie stars and singing stars and vaudeville stars uh in the 40s basically to to make money after his house got obliterated and accidentally created pop art in england and so he in, in in a lot of ways he's also part of that tradition uh the commonalities between him and warhol i think end with had a loft in an urban area but the the sensibility in which everything is grist for his mill is 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 one of the interesting things about spare that he's not you know tied down to just painting haystacks or whatever that he's got a lot going on and he never stops changing and growing and thinking both as an artist and as an occultist which in a way makes it harder to summarize him. Uh, but in another way, I think shows a, uh, as an artist to artist, I like that better than I like someone who, who nails something and then never leaves it. Uh, he was interested for a while in sigils. So he designed a lot of occult symbols that relate to his broader philosophy. And also he was a believer in atavistic resurgence that we all have ancient beings inside of us who are uh, driving our, our behavior and uh, that we are re- recapitulating events of an ancient past, uh, which is, uh, I don't know, as good an explanation uh, as any for why people are uh, are so loopy sometimes, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly harder to disprove than others. Yeah. The, the sigils, by the way, if you want to make an Austin Osmond spare sigil, you write out your wish or your desire in, you know, block capitals, and then you combine all those block capitals into a shape, and then you uh, meditate on that shape and do a yoga inspired by that shape and probably masturbate on that shape. And then that will activate the magical sigil and alter the Kia. Thanks to your zosing around, or it will do nothing except relieve a little tension, which is also not bad. Right. Uh, well, uh, we've had a, a, a long journey, uh, this episode, <laughs> we have, uh, finally finished our horror essential series. So, uh, next week we'll be back with features, including our, uh, delayed top 10 movies of 2020, uh, usually we have them around the Oscars. The Oscars have been delayed this year, and we're going to be delayed even further because uh, the Cinema Hut series went on for a bit. But I think people enjoyed that, Ken, and I'm glad to have a nice list of films for people to check out. Exactly. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Green Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast from fading out like a starving artist by joining such taste-making backers as... Alexander Zimmerman. Luke Silburn. Michael Bowman. Robbie Carlton. And Ruth Tillman. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate the inevitable rise of the cephalopods and subtweet your followers with our latest oceanic design. Here come the reply guys. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.